If you're an adult amateur horse lover who wonders what it takes to make magic with horses, you're in the right place. I'm Paige Lockton, and this is The Magic of Horsecraft. Join me for conversations with wizards in the world of horsecraft about the ingredients needed to build connection with horses and courage in life. Turns out these things are connected. How do I know? <laughs> like most things, I learned the hard way. I lost the magic I once had with horses. In regaining it, I discovered that the elements of connection are learnable. Whether you ride your horses forwards, backwards, or sideways, stick around for stories that show us how we are the same and that anything is possible. Take a chance. Welcome. Today's guest is Leslie Grant Law. And before you get to meet her, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. I've known Leslie since she was nearly 16, and I know if you know her, you would love her. At 16 years old, she was just an up-and-coming rider in the sport, and I was already just establishing myself, and I had a horse to sell. That horse's name was Topsy-Turvy. And yes, his name says a lot about what it was like to ride him back in the day. In his early days when I bought him from an old friend and mentor, Robin Hahn, he was a rogue. <laughs> he liked to grab the bit in his teeth and run. He loved to overjump. And this attitude he had gave us grief in water jumps, which back in the day were a lot deeper. So if you landed with a lot of G-forces, the knees crumpled and you paid the price. And Pay the price we did. Three times in one season at three separate events, we went underwater in the water jumps and earned the Rubber Ducky Award at the end of the season. Now, fast forward a bit, and training had paid off, as it usually does, and this horse was really a joy to ride, and it was his future to be a trainer, to show the ropes to some other up-and-coming rider, a young rider, or an adult amateur, but he had a reputation. But at the time Leslie was an up-and-coming rider, she hadn't spent very long in the sport and was gutsy and determined, and she wasn't born with horsey parents or boatloads of feel. Feel is sort of what we use in the horse world to describe natural talent. And um, yet she would put herself out there and was making her way up through the Young Rider program. And I knew that if I put Leslie on board and they did well, that I'd be able to sell the horse. She was game to do anything. And she took the horse on. We were meant to be able to get permission to downgrade him because the horse was showing just below the international level at um, the intermediate level. At the last minute, they wouldn't downgrade him, but she was plucky and she was well coached by her old coach, mentor and friend, Gary Rogue, and away she went and they did well, of course. They did well, they placed, she was beautifully full of gratitude for the opportunity to ride this horse and show it and get lessons on it. And she wrote me about a seven-page full-scat letter, handwritten with pictures and descriptions of every single jump on course. Today, she's a lot more grown up, but still full of that beautiful gratitude and grit. And in the meantime, she has earned her way up the ladder of Canadian eventing. 
She's been short or long-listed for the Canadian team eight times. She was a reserve rider for the Pan Am team twice. And she came so close to representing Canada in Beijing in one of those heartbreaking moments where at the very last minute, her horse came up limping. He was lame. Leslie is now married to Leslie Law, a rider from Great Britain, who came over to the Americas to marry the woman of his dreams. And together, they have a family, a 12-year-old son, Liam, and they run a business, Law Venting. And I was there recently, very lucky to spend two weeks with them in Florida, in Ocala, at their family farm, witnessing what they do day in and day out to achieve success. What I witnessed was really a beautiful thing to be a part of. They operate with integrity and honesty and are just who they are with everyone. Their owners, if you don't know horses, that comes out weird, their owners. The people that own the horses that they compete at the upper levels. <laughs> the girls in the barn who work for them. The students who come for lessons. The guy who fixes the air conditioning. Everybody's treated the same. And I spoke to a couple of the owners of their horses who were just so thrilled to be a part of their team. And I wanted to share with you a bit more about Leslie's story and to bash down some assumptions. I'm presenting her as the bulletproof bitch from eventing or one of the bulletproof bitches in eventing. But you'll come to know that no one is entirely bulletproof and learn a little bit more about her in our interview. In the world of horsecraft, where top riders look like veritable magicians, Leslie was born very much a muggle. Now she stands shoulder to shoulder with the best, a wizard in her own right. And she and her husband are looked to as leaders in the sport and help give others a leg up in their journey with horses. How did she do it? Listen to find out and have Leslie dispel some myths I came to the interview with. Today I'm interviewing Leslie Grant Law, one of my favorite bulletproof bitches in the sport of eventing, a crazy sport that's the ultimate test of horse and rider. I chose her for a few reasons. One, she's dedicated her life to becoming the best she can be and surrounds herself with what it takes to do that. Leslie's a top rider and has been for the past 20 years since I retired. So is her husband, also named Leslie. Hubby Leslie Law has represented Great Britain in every major game since the 90s. The Olympics, the World Championships, the European Championships, all of the championships. And he's come home with medals from each of them. Together they run a successful business, are involved dedicated parents, and are part of shaping the future of the sport through their contribution to working with young people. So obviously we've established credibility through their longevity and accomplishments in sport, but I want to talk to Leslie in particular for a few other reasons, which we'll unpack as we go along. The most important to me is the uncompromising candor that Leslie is famous for. There will be no beating around the bushes, no blowing smoke, and no bullshit here today, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to be coddled, you need to go somewhere else. But if you want to know what it takes to be resilient and to stay on top in the sport of kings, listen in as she shoots down some of my assumptions and sets me straight. Leslie, thank you for taking the time to do this today. I sure appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm so excited that you want to talk to me. 
So looking at your life from the outside as mere muggles in a sport where magicians seem to do impossible things with horses, I think sometimes we put people like you and your husband up on pedestals. We imagine what it must be like and what it must take to do what you do, and we often make all kinds of unhelpful assumptions. Uh, first of all, I think we assume you must be different and must be born of some kind of magic to grease the wheels that we don't have. Like money, right? You unless we're obviously born with silver spoons in your gorgeous mouths and have gobs of money thrown at you since childhood, right? <laughs> no, not, not exactly. I mean, Leslie for sure was not. I mean, he's been, it's widely known that, I mean, he, he grew up with two very amazing, hardworking parents, but I mean, they were, they were blue collar workers, you know, they were farmers for part of their life and drove um, mobile homes for part of their life. And he grew up in council housing for part of his life. And so that is certainly not, not the case for them. And, and absolutely his parents um, did very well for themselves in the end and owned a very nice little farm themselves. But they worked their whole lives to do that. And that's how Leslie was raised. And myself, I grew up probably in a more affluent family than, than Leslie, but whereas, you know, they were city folk and they were not animal people and they were not horse people. And that was not part of their grand design for me. So as far as I was given everything, um, in the world, as far as top, top education. Um, but as far as horses went, that was certainly not, um, handed to me at all any, any more than, they thought it was a passing fancy. So, so no more than I would, you know, if Liam wanted piano lessons, I, I would happily fork out once a week for piano lessons, never expecting him to become Mozart, just a passing fancy, but you want to encourage your children to do different things. But um, as far as horses were concerned, um, they were happy to help me do it as a hobby. They were not happy to, um, to, facilitate what I wanted to do, which was go into it full time and go to the very top and be amazing. They didn't facilitate that only because in their mind, where they came from in their generation, a successful child um, was to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And so surely um, horses were not going to be encouraged to that extent. So as far as horses were concerned, um, no. I mean, my first horse was, once I, I battered them into letting me have a horse, it was a rising four-year-old off-the-track thoroughbred mare. I mean, it was, uh, you know, totally, you know, not appropriate and, and very, very cheap. And um, so, yeah, no, no silver spoons anywhere at these tables. Yeah, I knew that. I could sort of set you up for that. Um, and I have witnessed how hard you work to get here. So um, things have changed a bit in the sport. Can someone who wasn't born rich still have a shot at making it to the top? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's more difficult. I mean, look, people have short memories and, and the good old past, like we always joke about our grandparents saying, you know, when they say we went uphill both ways to school in the snow, um, people have funny ways of remembering the past. And I think one thing people forget of 
in the horse world is it might be more expensive now and more elitist, but it was always elitist. I mean, it, it was always elitist and people forget that. It might be more so now, but it was way back when too. Just people either didn't know or they've forgotten. Um, but just like then, as is now, there will always be people that come from nothing who, if, you know, with a lot of hard work and a bit of talent and maybe a lot of good luck, don't forget that. Um, yeah, absolutely. There will always be people that can do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If this is resonating with you and you've ever felt a little lost as you navigate conflicting data from horse pros across the disciplines, all claiming to have their own methods or recipes for making magic with horses, and you want the clarity and confidence to make sense of it all, I have a roadmap for you. Check out our foundation course. Consider it Horsecraft 101, from amateur to magician, making magic with horses. A unique group coaching program with live online support that helps adult amateurs from non-horsey families who are seeking understanding and connection become the best stewards for their horses in nine weeks, without conflicting data, lack of knowledge, or not knowing where to go to for help. So they understand how and why horses think and react the way they do to create a relaxed and confident relationship. If you're still on the fence, we have a freebie for you. If you're ready, so are we. You can get started at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, take a chance and remember, anything is possible. So you must focus every day on getting to the next games, winning medals, right? Like Olympics, 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 or all you dream about (laughs) day and night, right? Is, Is that what kids should do in this sport? No, I mean... I did at some point when I was a kid, and like I said, when you're a kid, you should have those dreams. I mean, that's part of being a kid, Um, and I I look at some of my own kids' dreams, and, you know, I'm laughing in my head, but I don't do that to him because at some point you should be allowed that childhood and those dreams, but I mean, those dreams might as well be produced by Disney. I mean, that's... And then at some point, those dreams have to morph into goals and they have to be realistic. And even in today's day with the change in the format for the Olympics, it's even harder now. You know, it's now three people go, period, out of every four years. So, I mean, if you're going to hold your breath for that, you're going to turn blue pretty quickly. So I think having that as a as a happy place in your head to dream about is maybe a nice thing, but making that your goal period, I think would be um, incredibly foolish right now, to be honest. Um, I think as you get close to that and if it's in your sights and it becomes reality, then by all means, you got to attack that head first and dedicate yourself to it. But until you get right there, I think you'd do much better focusing on other things. Mm-hmm. You talked the other day about finding your niche in the market and following your passion and that you guys wake up and work hard every day because it's a life you've created for yourself where you get to do what you're passionate about, I think is uh, kind of what I wanted to tease out there too. 
Um, the other night we watched a movie called King Richard about how he developed his two daughters, Serena and Venus Williams, to the top of the sport of tennis, something that no one else had yet done from their socioeconomic background. And in it, we saw that it took a tremendous amount of confidence and a solid belief in the possibility. So I was thinking you and others at the top of the sport must have a rock solid, unshakable confidence. Am I right? No, not at all. <laughs> I think it's hard. I mean, you know, watching that movie, that's an excellent movie. It's hard though. You, well, you can draw some parallels, it's quite hard to draw a parallel between tennis and, and the horse thing because, you know, tennis, you need a racket and some balls and some shoes. That's not the case. You know, there's a huge difference in what you need financially to do the one sport than the other. And often I have looked up to the stars and wondered, what else can I do? And wouldn't it be lovely to be passionate about something that you only have to rely on yourself because I am a hard worker and I I'm smart and I'm a hard worker and I thought if I could do something that didn't require money and the support and assistance of others I could probably do and be as good as anything I wanted but that would be nice but that's not my passion and that's not my life but you know it it would be nice so do you have moments of self-doubt? All the time. I have doubt all the time. That's why I've got a coffee cup actually that says doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. Mm -hmm. And I, I um, drink out of that at least once a week so I can remind myself it's a good little m mantra. Yeah, I have huge self-confidence problems. You know, it's a double-edged sword if you want to be good at something because... If you really, really want to get good at something, then you have to have a little bit of the idea that you're never good enough because that is what will fuel you to get better and to learn more and to, to be a scholar of your sport or whatever it is. So you have to have a little bit of that in you that I need to be, you know, always I'm not good enough. And that's what will drive you to get better. But the double-edged sword bit is if you let the not good enough part take over, then that can destroy you as well. So it's a very fine line all the time of balancing, I'm not good enough, I want to be better, and balancing that with, yeah, but I'm better than most, and I've got to be confident about that. So I think it's always a fine line, and I'm sure for most people that's the case. I'm sure there's some very lucky, super arrogant people out there, and I'm jealous of them because sometimes I think I wish I wish that was me because I think things would be easier. Um, I have to work a lot on my on my brain, to be honest. It's a double-edged sword, really. It's a confidence game for sure. Now I wonder um, in other sports we see tremendous egos, like track stars and that sort of thing. And I think there's a difference between ego and confidence. Um, what happens when ego runs the show in this sport? Have you ever witnessed it? Well, I think, too, the interesting thing, like I've heard you speak to before as well, is some of those people, um, like you say, are masking. Some of those people that come across as very arrogant um, are probably actually very scared. 
And that is their way of dealing with it. Um, I think for me, when I have issues, you know, I, I'm just very quiet. That's how I deal with things. Um, some people probably are boisterous and arrogant, but they're actually probably as you know, as scared might not be the right word, but as struggling with confidence as I am or worse, you know, and then that's just their way of masking it and trying to fool themselves. But I think, um, I think that's part of it. And unless you really knew someone, um, you wouldn't know. And I think as far as ego, there's not much room in horses for ego because, um, the one thing about horses and the horse sport is it doesn't discriminate. <laughs> and no matter how much money you have or how good you are, um, bad things happen to everybody. And it's it's just a matter of time. And that's sport as well, right? Like any sport, that's what makes sport exciting is even, you know, the best golfer, the best tennis player in the world um, can lose on any given day. Um, whether it's their fault or whether it's just bad luck or whatever, or their circumstances are different than someone that played earlier in the day or late in the day. I mean, that is what makes sport exciting. And so with horses, even more so as they have their own brain and their own physical being that has to be kept in one piece and all that. So I think to have an ego in this sport, I haven't seen it much, to be honest, because even the the very best in the world know that they're potentially one show away from being on the floor or having their horse broken or or whatever. It happens to everybody. So it is a great equalizer, our sport. Definitely. So the other thing that strikes me in this crazy sport where you gallop madly over hill and dale, jumping over whatever crazy obstacles get in your way is that you must be bulletproof. I mean, absolutely fearless, right? No, I've got a lot of scars. I've taken bullets. Like I just said, I mean, the sport takes everybody. At some point, it takes everybody. And I'm not bulletproof physically or mentally, I think. Especially at the big events, um, everybody's scared. I think it's a matter of perspective. I did one kind of podcast thing where people could call in and ask for questions and these amateur ladies were like I saw you at the event on the weekend and you're so calm and it's so easy and and you never sweat and it looks great well of course I was riding like a training and prelim horse and so for them they were really nervous but for me you know training and prelim is not a big deal now I get, you know, my first horse last week doing his first intermediate. Trust me, that's a big deal. And that to me is the same as them going out around their training, you know. And so there is always angst. There's always nerves. Like Leslie said, you know, always says you don't want to go out cross country without some nerves because that's probably, you know, the nervousness and the adrenaline and stuff is probably what keeps us sharp physically and our our reaction time sharp. Um, So I I don't think you want to go out there, you know, laid back and calm. And like I said, I think it's all a matter of perspective. But at the end of the day, if it's if it's a big deal for you, everybody um, gets nervous, Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they all do for sure. Okay, so 
you weren't born bulletproof and fearless, but you were born with a gift, right? Like dipped in the magic sauce at birth, gifted with natural born feel? No, not at all. I think actually what, and I'm not sure I was born with it, but if I have a gift, it's in being stubborn. <laughs> That's my gift, you know, and I'm sure it wasn't a gift. I was sure, I'm sure it's something cultivated in my early years, but I, I have no gifts or talents for riding. I don't, I don't think I had a gift for it, but I did have somehow early on instilled in me um, how to work and how to work hard. I don't think I have any laziness in me whatsoever, and I'm stubborn. You know, I say all the time that I'm like a cockroach. You can see a cockroach on your wall and throw your shoe at it really hard and you'll hit it and it'll drop 10 feet and you'll be like, there, it's dead. And then up it gets and it runs across your floor. So I think if I have a gift, that's it. I'm good at being a cockroach. But um, no, I don't think I had um, any talent. Leslie says I did, but it got took a long, you know, you got to get it out of you. And if you don't have that, that support at the beginning, you need to wait for the right people and the right horses to help you get it out of you. But whatever, whoever's correct, Leslie or I, you know, um, it wasn't there at the beginning and it took um, a long time to come out. So do you think that feel is learnable then? That sort of connection, the feel that we have that allows us to from the ground do things that look almost telepathic with horses because there's such a strong connection there or feel or timing? I think if it's feel for riding, you know, the quote unquote feel that everyone talks about and how to ride, I think that can be taught to most people. I don't think it can be taught to everyone, just like not every you know, not everyone, I couldn't run. I, I don't know why. I was physically a totally fine kid. I couldn't run to save my life, and I still can. And and other people have no ear for music, and they have no ear for dance. And, and you know, I, I don't think everyone can learn the feel. I think most people can. But then the big question is, out of those most people, um, you need to have the tools to, if you don't, if you're not born an Eric Lamaz or some kind of Svengali, you know, then you have to be taught the feel and learn the feel. And that requires A, a teacher, and B, the horses are very important. You know, when I had those off-the-track thoroughbreds as a kid, how could I learn feel? They, I knew nothing. The horses had zero mouths. They knew nothing. I mean, completely blind leading the blind. And I had access to some good lessons and instruction. But, you know, it wasn't until I was a working student later on and I sat on an advanced horse that I was like, holy cow, that's what a mouth feels like. And then you can learn the connection, you know, leg to hand and all that stuff and the acceptance of the bridle. And until you feel it, those are just terms thrown out in the air. But until you feel it, it is hard to get the feel, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think probably most people can learn it. But to learn it, you have to have the access to the right people and probably 
somewhat the right horses, then not saying you have to own them, but you have to be able to sit on them. And, you know, the horses can be as much a teacher as anyone else. Um, so you have to have the ways to access the ability to learn. And I, I read a lot of books and I watch a lot of videos and I believe in all that, but you also need the practice and you need the experience. Um, so, you know, you need that to be able to learn it, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a tremendous number of ingredients. I think I have seen um, some sort of adult amateurs pour their hearts and their wallets and their time into it and still lack a little bit of something. And I'm toying with a theory that um, they are coming to the barn with something that doesn't allow them to connect. And that's something is in their nervous system state. So I'm toying with this a little bit um, because I discovered that you can um, hack into your own nervous system to create a state of coherence where your mind, your body, your emotions are all in line, creating that sort of feeling of being in the zone. Um, and horses uh, through experiments are statistically really attracted to it. So it's something I want to toy with some more, and I appreciate your perspective on it. Um, I've heard some of my mentors, starting with Pat Burgess, who coached so many European riders to the top of the sport, including Lucinda Green, um, I heard her state that horses think in pictures, that we should send them a picture of what we want them to do just before we apply the aids. Do you think they can? Is this something that you think they can do? And is visualization a tool you use? Yes, I use that. I mean, I go through my courses a few times in my head. I mean, if I walk them one day, I'll sat in the bath or the shower, I'll go through my courses and I, I picture every fence. And especially if I have a few different courses, you know, to remember them all is important. So I'll go through them a number of times in my head and sometimes the wolves will creep in, like we said about the confidence stuff, and I can, you know, easily imagine everything that can go wrong everywhere and I literally have to scream at myself and I'll start at the beginning again and I'll make myself do those courses until the wolves stop coming in and showing me what could go wrong and I only see how I want to do it right. So... And I, I'll do the same with my dressage tests. So, yes, I use visualization. Um, as far as how horses see, I, I would never think that they see in pictures, but, I mean, maybe they do. I'm not saying that's wrong, for sure. I think, I mean, your idea, what you just said about the nervous system and people being open, I think that's absolutely correct. I think horses are very intuitive. I think they can pick up on us. I think all animals probably can, although again, I have no scientific data behind this, but it's, it certainly seems to be the case. And I think, um, you know, a, a large part going back to that for humans, it's hard is a large part of interacting with horses and riding them goes against our natural instinct. And that is one big thing, like for an adult amateur that would and kids coming up and stuff, that's a hard one to swallow. For example, um, horses are flight animals. We know that. We all know that. And when they get nervous, um, the first thing 
us humans want to do is grab a hold of them because we want to control the situation. I see it all the time with new kids that come to us to be working students or adult amateurs will go hacking down the road and when they the horses get nervous the first thing they do is shorten their shorten their reins really short and grab a hold of them and that is about the worst thing you can do because then you take a flight animal and you stick them in a box and they can't go and and then they start boiling over and things get worse and worse and worse you know when my horses get nervous, as soon as I think that I'm not going to fall off, you know, I actually drop the reins just about. I'll go to the buckle and be like, here you go. If you see a dragon, you are free to get the heck out of here and, you know, make them think that they could leave if they had to leave. And, um, you know, all of a sudden in doing that, they just take a breath. Mm. As soon as they know you've relaxed, they relax. But that's the difficult thing is it goes completely against our human nature. You know, when horses feel tense, we want to grab a hold. That's our human nature. We want to control. Actually, the worst thing you can do for most horses, it it exasperates the problem. So I think um, there's a lot to that. And I think, you know, when dealing with the horses, a big part of it is you have to understand what a horse is. Um, and then after you understand what a horse period is, you have to understand your horse (laughs) and they're all slightly different. They're all horses at the end of the day. And you need to know what that means. And then after that, they have very different personalities. And I think learning to deal with them on the level of whatever their personality is, um, you know, I jump all my horses differently one's careful he's got to be jumped differently than the one that's not as careful you know they all need to be treated within their personalities in the greater picture of the fact that they're all horses so I think um you know there is a lot to be said for whatever you said about understanding the horses um in order to be able to deal with them better mm-hmm. My dad has a saying that he picked up from a chuck wagon racer that has never let me down, which is never holler woe in a tight spot. Um, and it, it is facilitating forward movement when horses are yeah, nervous. Yeah, exactly. Opening a door and not closing a door. Exactly. And I think that can be taken just as advice for life. A lot of this uh, anecdotally um, or metaphorically rather can be taken for just advice on how to live a good life. Yeah. I just want to finish with this. Uh, In my time here, we've been ruminating a lot about what it takes. And there's a laundry list of things like hard work and dedication, yada, yada, yada. But I propose that at the core of it, one of of the standout things that I've witnessed you and Les produce in spades every day with every horse and every rider and every sponsor and owner of your five star horses is an honesty, respect and gratitude. So you have respect for yourselves and your horses and your students. It's not just that you're nice, but there's a level of gratitude that you have, an acknowledgement of the high standards you have to set to operate at this level, and a deep appreciation for those on your team that are helping you get there. And I propose that if you weren't born with money and talent oozing out of your pores, if you're someone out there who wasn't born with that, you may want to take a page from the laws. <laughs> um, there is a feeling of safety and connection here on their farm and a respect between each member of the team, allowing the horses and riders to really learn and flourish. 
And that is maybe what's different about them from some other barns or programs where egos run the show and money tries to make up for the lack of other things it takes. In those programs, students and horses break down and it doesn't have to be that way. So in the end, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we can see after Leslie shot down all of my wrong assumptions. Thank you very much, Leslie, for <laughs> your candor <laughs> and your no bullshit approach to life. I think we can see that we are all the same. We, are, we all have to deal with fear and overcome it. Um, and if we're willing to show up every day, anything is possible. Absolutely. You and Leslie are living proof of that. And uh, your barn sets an industry standard in terms of creating an atmosphere of growth. So thank you very much for that. And thanks for your time today. Thank you. Hey, you're still here. Thanks so much for listening. What you think and feel matters. If this resonated with you, please like and share. It truly makes a difference. I encourage you to engage with the content on my Substack account and my socials, all at The Magic of Horsecraft, where you can join the discussion and shape the future shows. Tell me what you want to hear more of or less of, and we'll evolve together as we grow a community of like-minded souls here for the good of the horse. If you're an adult amateur horse lover looking for confidence and clarity in your role of equine steward, Check out my course, From Amateur to Magician, Making Magic with Horses, at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, I'm here to remind you of a couple things. One, underneath it all, we all want the same things. To be heard, understood, and accepted for who we are. And two, anything is possible. Take a chance.